Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, JP Barrick, and this is Digital Gold. Known to many as the Bitcoin kid, I started buying cryptocurrency out of my parents' basement back in 2013. The goal of this show is to simplify the crypto world and explore how it changes the way the world thinks about money through conversations with thought leaders in this space. JP Barrick is the founder and CEO of Orem Capital Ventures. All opinions expressed by JP and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Orem Capital Ventures. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Today, my guests are Guzman and Colin from Luxor. Guzman is the CPO, the Chief Product Officer at Luxor Mining Pool, and Colin is the Head of Content at Luxor Mining Pool. Today, we're excited to talk about hash rate, how the capital markets have grown in the Bitcoin mining space, and the discounts on future ASIC mining machines. Welcome to the show, guys. How was your Christmas? Very well. Thanks for having us on, uh, JB. Awesome. I'm glad to close it out with you guys as the last podcast for 2021 and jump into where we all started, which is hash rates. So can you guys give me an indication of what you have seen over the past six months after the China ban? What happened to the market, maybe what you were expecting to happen and how that's affected future deliveries of ASICs and current deliveries of ASICs? Sure. So I guess kind of the last year or six months in mining has been pretty wild. Uh, actually, so from from the China ban, we saw fifty percent, or maybe like a little bit more than fifty percent hash rate drop uh, immediately, like overnight in total network hash rate. Uh, and since then, we've been essentially we saw the the network kind of like come pretty much to like all time high hash rate and difficulty levels since that ban. It has been pretty much every miner has been struggling to get machines uh, plugged in, and right away everyone is fighting for like rack space. Uh, that's kind of very scarce right now. And then that's also kind of like reflected in the ASIC prices. From the China ban, ASIC prices also dipped quite a bit. Maybe not as much as Hashri did, but definitely we saw like a 30, 40% decrease in ASIC prices. But since then, also with a little bit of help uh, from Bitcoin price going into like all-time highs towards Q3 of this year, ASIC prices have rebounded. Since then, we are seeing like at least $100 per terahash on like new gen ASX. Yeah, that's kind of like a, a small summary of what's going on in, in mining and ASIC markets over the last few months. And for those people that aren't familiar with a terahash value, Colin, can you give us the exa- uh, what a terahash means and exactly what that means to a Bitcoin miner? Yeah, so a terahash is just a rating of hash rate. The lowest end of the totem pole is a single hash, goes all the way up to exahashes, and terahash is the third largest unit behind petahash and exahash. And when we look at ASIC prices to kind of make pricing transparency or to make uh, prices more transparent and to break it down on a more granular level, we look at prices of machines per terahash, right? So for instance, right now, um, looking at hash rate index, I believe that the price per terahash or average price per terahash for a machine like an S19 is 102 bucks a terahash. So if you had an S19 with 100 terahashes of hash rate, you could expect to pay just a little bit above 10 grand for that machine. So it's basically just a way to break down ASIC prices. No, I appreciate that um, for our audience. It's important that we use this new term terahash. And I was actually talking about hash rate with my mom yesterday. And she was like, I have no idea what a terahash is. I'm like, well, it's like the building block of this whole space. Most people are familiar with Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, but this whole concept of a terahash, we don't know much about. So can you guys talk about hash rate index and how you developed that and that 
terahash value. So, because for myself, I use terahash values for modeling, for my conversations. I think it's better than talking about how the cost of mining a Bitcoin or how much Bitcoin you're going to get at the end of the day. Guzman, do you mind jumping in and explaining how you guys built that index and what it's meant to do for consumers and for industry participants? We started the hash rate index, I would say, like almost two and a half, three years ago. Uh, at that time, hash rate index was kind of like a nights and weekend project outside from kind of like luxury main business, uh, which is like mining pools. And at that time, what we were seeing is we started to essentially craft this idea of uh, hash price and, and, and the expected value of hash rate. Because we see hash rate as a commodity, which then it can be traded, that you can start like building all sorts of financial instruments on top. But at that time, two and a half, three years ago, that was not very well understood in, in the market. So we went on kind of this mission, like small uh, side project to start like essentially providing the community with some data and insights into what like hash price means. What's the miners revenue? What are the cost of these ASIC machines that not many people knew about and whatnot? And that's essentially pretty much how the hash index was born. We essentially went into the mine, a coding mine and put together some really cool insights or at that time what we thought were cool insights for the community. And since then we were even taking feedback adding new stuff and well adding content now just we just relaunched the entire website with a bunch of new metrics and whatnot all community driven anyone out there that wants to see like a new metric or wants us, us to iterate on it happy to take any feedback and that's pretty much how we build hash rate index since uh, the beginning can you talk about the data sources that you guys have pulled to get this index created and how luxor came about caring about the terahash value and the fluctuation based on what the mining pools are paying for a terahash the hash price index, which is the expected value of hash rate, it's actually fairly easy to compute with like publicly available information. It's like blockchain data, which is essentially the expected value of hash rate, the same way as full paper share mining pools pay to its customers. So that's like also a very easy way to audit mining pools. So essentially what we do there is we compute that FPPS rate uh, and we can essentially convert that into like a dollar per hash per day, like metric. So in terms of data source there, it's Bitcoin node, scrape blockchain data, uh, and then have like a reference price for Bitcoin itself. Other data sets are a little bit more complex. For example, we have the re-index pricing. And in that index, uh, we try to essentially estimate what's the value of different ASIC machines over different efficiency tiers. That's a little more complex to essentially generate because most ASIC like buys and orders happen OTC, essentially behind closed doors between miners and brokers and sometimes even manufacturers, right? In order to compute that index, we've been on a mission over the last couple of years to scrape as much as possible from the web. And I think right now we have like over 30 or 40 sources that we collect data from in order to compute that like Greek price index. Can you talk about how these back of the market deals happen, these backroom office deals? I think Marathon just launched or released today that they bought another 78 or 80,000 plus S19s, which is insane. I mean, that's that's over 300 megawatts of capacity, right? That's where is that going to go? So can you talk about how you guys get insight into this market? Like you just have microphones in all the boardrooms or how does that work? Kind of those like one of deals that Marathon is able to do they, they, because of their size and how many ASICs, I mean, you just said is 300 megawatts worth of ASIC. It's kind of like an insane number, uh, not only of energy, but also rig count. Publicly traded companies, they would like usually like advertise in their public filings or like even announcements from whom and at which like average cost 
they bought those miners from. So that's kind of like a very easy way to get a reference for well, like Marathon is able to acquire ASX, but that's not the reality for the rest of the market. The rest of the market usually operates, I would say, in like a much less transparent, transparent way. So there's a bunch of brokers all over the world, uh, mostly in the US, which will try to sell ASX to small, to even like private companies and even some like public traded companies, ASX, and they literally have like Telegram groups and they're like advertising essentially their, their price for different machines. So we go into every single Telegram group, WeChat, websites. We also have other brokers that submit data to us in order to compute this index. And something that we've been seeing over the last few months since last, since like essentially Luxor started its own like brokerage business, there's a lot of essentially lack of accountability in the brokerage industry. One of the main reasons that we've been able to succeed in the brokerage business is because we are able to bring the Luxor brand really high quality legal contracts between all of the parties involved in all of these like offtake brokerage agreements and also try to reduce kind of the counterparty risk that happen on these markets. And that's also a, a data a data point that we take into consideration for the index, even like our own like brokerage business line. So yeah, if you take all of those data points into account, we are adding like hundreds of different data points that go into each week price update. Can you talk about where you are seeing the margin? Like you're saying $102 a terash. So I know it's possible to get a machine for $102 a terash, but that's not usually shipped, even at least for us. So can you talk about where's the spread? Is it 102 to 120? Is it 130? Is it 110? And how has the broker business taken off with Luxor? And what does that look like? So in terms of margin, what we're trying to do in the index is kind of like kind of the gross dollar per hash for the machine. So uh, as Colin was mentioning, if you see like 102, $103 per hash, that bait, and if you are buying like a hundred or a hash machine, that essentially means that that machine is worth slightly more than 10K a piece. Of course, different buyers and given economies of scale will get different margins, right? So if you are going to, let's say a retail miner is going to buy an ASIC, they're probably going to be paying at least a 20, 30% premium, if not more. Like we are seeing, for example, some ASICs on Compass Marketplace going like wild for 150 or like $180 at their hash which is insane. I have no idea how these people are going to ride these machines in the short term. On the opposite side, you have like Marathon, which is buying thousands of ASICs uh, at even a much lower cost than this, like $100 per hash. So it really depends your volume, your size. But yeah, like on average, if you are like a mid-sized miner, you should be looking to pay, as you just mentioned, something very close to this index. Yeah, I was going to jump in there with talking about Compass. If you look at their turnkeys, because they have that new marketplace. So anyone who mines with Compass can now liquidate through Compass. And these turnkey machines are expected usually to turn around after you buy them. It's like a week and it's going to be online for you, right? Those carry a huge premium because instead of waiting a few months or in a lot of cases with some of Compass's machines, if you're buying them, you're waiting six months until it gets online. And those six months machines usually have a discount, right? Like you can actually find some S9s, S19s that are like 90 to 95 bucks a terahash. And that's because the lead time on it is so long. Long. And inversely, with some of the big players, if you look at pre-orders for the S19 XP, that thing is 140 terahash, but it was selling for like 10,500 for some for the first batch of pre-orders. So that's like 75 bucks a terahash. Obviously, the caveat here being no one actually knows how well this machine will perform. The miners are taking a risk. I mean, Bitmain makes some good machines, but we all know that the S17 was garbage, right? So you always kind of run the risk of newer models not being as up to snuff. And obviously, those machines are not going to start hitting racks until Q3 of next year, probably even a little later, depending on how supply chain issues and just general logistical problems interrupt the supply chain schedule. So it sounds like this marketplace 
has a lot of work still to be built into it. Even though we have people building on top of it, trying to build futures and pre-orders and ability to bring transparency to the market, it seems like it's still very disjointed. And that's what we're seeing on our side. Is that a statement that you guys agree with? It sounds like that's the case. How do we, where do you guys see this market being in two years? Does it compress? Do we get a, a easier to use platform? How do you guys see this market changing? Does it become tokenized where you don't actually own the physical machines? What things are people throwing around in the back of the office? This is the easy answer, but I'll build on it. I think that transparency, ease of use, and just general access to services only goes up from here. Even in just this year, right? Like you've had product offerings from companies like Compass that make it easier for retail to get into mining. You also have companies like Luxor that have started doing brokerage, right? So before the China ban, so much obviously of Bitcoin's mining industry was concentrated in China. And that also meant that machines were somewhat harder to come by if you weren't well connected, right? And even then you wanted to make sure that the supplier and the broker was a trusted were trusted parties because people got screwed all the time. And not even in just, you know, orders not being fulfilled, but you'd order a batch of 100 machines and 90 of them would be lemons, right? So I think that with the China ban, there was this opportunity, right? And a lot of North American companies like Luxor jumped on it. There was this huge demand for not only more transparency, but just services for the North American mining industry. And so companies like Luxor establishing brokerage arms, we kind of absorb some of that business. The other thing that I think is going to really on the brokerage side, you know, you're going to see more and more players for mining companies uh, across multiple different business lines. It just makes sense to do it. You're buying these machines anyway. You have buddies and friends and colleagues that need machines. And so it's just a natural extension of the business. Another thing that I think will help kind of grease the wheels of this going forward is just having more manufacturers too, right? So we had Blockstream purchase Spondulis this year. A lot of people are pretty optimistic about that bringing some much needed competition and hopefully opening up access to smaller miners, right? Because again, one of the big problems right now with the current model, you have Bitmain and MicroBT, which are the giants. And who's Bitmain going to service? They're going to service Marathon, who comes to the negotiating table and says, we have $800 million to spend on pre-orders. And so, of course, Marathon's going to get that business. Um, a lot of the flows from those kinds of deals obviously go to the bigger guys, and then it kind of trickles down to the rest of us. Some people think that Blockstream will probably not be able to compete with Bitmain in terms of efficiency, but if they can kind of carve out a niche with smaller miners and retail miners, even if the machines aren't as efficient, then perhaps they can really kind of make some ground on that front. When does Samsung, NVIDIA, AMD, Intel get into this space and really start putting pressure on the market. Bitcoin mining, we have 20 years left where 99% of the coins will be mined. So that's where I tell people after that, I don't really know what's going to happen, but I know we have another 20 years left to really play this game. We're, have you guys heard of anything like any of these guys, these bigger chip players getting into this space and really showing Bitmain that they can do it better and it's not that hard to do? They've been in the space for some time, right? Mostly on the GPU mining market. NVIDIA and also Intel, they released GPUs that are specifically designed just for Ethereum mining, right? I think at 8, they are taking delivery right now of a huge batch of GPUs that were designed by Intel. And these GPUs, they, they, were, they got them before the rest of the market, or the GPUs were essentially available to the market. So they got these miners well in advance. I think they are still getting their feet into the water and testing for these giants, right? There's a, a lot to be said about the 
kind of if you're not into the space of what's what's essentially what's like long-term bitcoin mining going to look like and if there's actually worth the time and investment for them to get into the space at least i think that's what's going on into all of these executives minds right kind of like an asic binder it's completely different to the kind of chips they're used to manufacture asics are way i'll say like robust in a different sense than the chips that go into cell phones and of the MacBooks and and computers that we use. Yeah, I think they're kind of like thinking what's the long-term outlook for them to essentially decide if it makes sense or not uh, to get into the space. And I think too, it depends on like the Overton window of how much people actually accept Bitcoin mining. I think that there's still a lot of people in the United States who are looking at Bitcoin mining and saying it's wasteful, saying we don't need that, talking about how much e-waste it creates and how much the resources could be allocated to other industries like cell phone manufacturing, car manufacturing, you know, chips go into everything, right? And everything from your refrigerators to your TVs. So I think that for some of these bigger players, they're going to need both more public support and it's going to have to be normalized. I think that once you start having large energy producers in the United States and grid operators mining Bitcoin, I think that kind of opens up the avenue for them. And it also, to to Guzman's point, like it has to be in their interests, right? The kind of business that they might get starting out from just the mining industry, who's got all of these ties with all of these legacy companies like Bitcoin and what's minor or micro BT might be a little harder to get their foot in the door. But if some American companies and some American entities start mining Bitcoin at scale, like those energy providers, and they kind of set up these deals with Samsung or Intel or something like that, then maybe that kind of opens the door a little further and give kind of spurs them on. So it definitely seems like it's going to come from these larger well-financed companies that are going to come into the space and build out this maybe new layer, this new side of the business for uh, chip manufacturing and for for newer machines. How do you guys see the capital markets and the recent string of public companies in the mining space affecting capitalization, affecting how much percentage of mining is done by the public companies versus the retail market? Is retail dead? Can you guys talk farther on that and what you're seeing from the interest side, from the content you guys are creating and your pulse on the market in general? I think over the last, 2021, in my opinion, was kind of the year for publicly traded mining companies. Specifically in the public markets, what we are seeing is like a market arbitrage where a miner is able to go and raise funds in order to procure ASICs and get a really good multiple. So like a more detailed like view on this, in Hashrate Index, we have a kind of like a stocks dashboard in which we track a bunch of metrics on polygraded mining companies, right? So for example, if we take Marathon as an example, they, and also their latest filing in Hashrate, they're like operating just over three exahashes of Bitcoin mining Hashrate. And under market capitalization, it's just over 3 billion. So if you look on a like market cap to Hashrate ratio, that means they are worth $1,000 per terahash that they're able to plug in right now. We've been talking since the very beginning of the podcast, what's the cost of these ASIC miners? And we are talking like on a spot basis. They, like you can go and procure new gen hardware for a hundred bucks a terahash. So essentially that means that they are getting a 10x multiple on essentially any amount of money they can raise and, and get their, essentially their hands on miners. And that's kind of the arbitrage that all of these companies are trying to pursue. You get a hundred bucks and you can immediately turn it into a thousand just to public market valuation dynamics. And that's kind of what like every single public trade company is trying to aim for, just 
raise money in the capital markets, get orders, like future orders from Bitmain, MicroBT, brokers, Luxor itself, and try to, to go and get these crazy valuation multiples. Probably one thing that could be said is these miners might be taking a little bit to risk. They're not necessarily trying to build like long-term cash flow positive businesses, but at least seeking kind of like short, short-term valuation while we still are in a bull market. And so you hinted at Luxor's plan. How does Luxor fit into going public? What does the roadmap look like that you guys have discussed internally or you're able to share externally without Ethan, the CEO, breathing down our throats? <laughs> I mean, like public markets procuring ASICs from Luxor. We are not necessarily looking to go public anytime soon. Especially not in 2022. So I feel like a public mining pool, I mean, like Marathon's public, right? And they have a pool. I feel like that just opens up a very interesting dynamic. I mean, once a mining pool, especially one that's retail focused, like Luxor is pretty retail focused. I mean, we've got a lot of guys slinging big hash rate, right? But the business, the core of the business was built on the back of pleb miners, right? And so once you go public, I feel like those, I mean, it really kind of, puts those guys in a tough spot. Suddenly the pool is kind of making decisions based on the board and based on what they feel like their shareholders want and no longer really making choices based on what the core of the business, the retail users need. Orem provides a bridge to the digital currency mining world for individual investors, financial institutions, and energy companies. By combining over seven years of mining experience, 24 seven management, and directly aligned incentives, Orem's managed mining program is the simplest way to enter the digital currency mining market. To learn more, please visit forumcapitalventures.com. So let's talk about this future of hash rate. And I want to talk about financialization of hash rate more specifically. So can you guys discuss where you see TerraHash or when you see TerraHash as being purchased in bulk quantities and we're not buying the underlying asset? How are there, is there interest from investment banks? Is there interest from family offices? What type of structures are you guys seeing in the marketplace? And is there anything out there today that's actually working? Over the last like, couple of years, we've been seeing different approaches to this idea of financialization of, of hash rate, right? Kind of that first take was cloud mining contracts, where essentially you could go with your credit card and buy hash rate future, like X amount of compute power. In most cases, it was like focused for retail and all of these people were ripped off. But that was the idea, right? Like sell hash rate future. Then we had like approaches like pooling some Binance hash rate tokens. So it's a way like tokenized hash rate as well. And both tokens got quite a bit of uh, market capitalization in them. Not only retail, but like a bunch of people like trading them. So in terms of volume, there's definitely kind of like an offering there. We also have like FTX difficulty adjustment like instrument. And then we have kind of like big bespoke P2 the OTC hash rate contracts, right? So there's been like multiple iterations over the last couple of years on what like a hash rate the reality could look like, specifically the hash rate futures, right? I think none of them have fully succeeded from like a product market fit basis for different reasons. But where like Luxor comes in and I think where we have like our differentiation there is that we believe that hash rate, like a financial product that involves hash rate needs to be built by the mining pool because nobody knows how to manage and deliver hash rate and like also like understands hash rate better than the mining pool. Essentially, all of we do is take hash rate every single second in order to build consensus on a blockchain, right? And we buy the hash rate unpaid miners for, for their service. So essentially what we're trying to do is like take off the knowledge that we've been building 
into receiving and delivering hash rate, right? To be like a financial product on top. One of the key aspects that you can like start thinking there is like physical delivery of hash rate. You can do like a physically delivered hash rate contract. And the only way to do it is if you're the mining pool that you're able to like proxy hash rate to a specific contract and whatnot. I think there's where like our different take on the hash rate product is going to look like. We sound like a broken record here. We've been trying to bring this to market for a while now. I think 2022 is going to is going to be the year where we start seeing some of those like first iterations. And I definitely think it's needed. But I, you guys have been on the podcast earlier talking about this, at least, at least Ethan has. So it's not a broken record, but it's innovation. And in, in something like this, where we had to even explain what a terahash is to people, shows you how far we have to go before we're financializing the value of a terahash. So Colin, can you talk to me about the marketing and the content game at Luxor? I've seen a lot of blog posts, but I haven't seen many TikToks. So I'm just so confused. What are we doing? No, I'm joking. But what are we doing at Luxor and how are you guys getting the name and brand out there? It's funny that you say that because Will Foxley was talking to Ethan. Uh, Will Foxley from Compost was talking to Ethan the other day and he tried to convince him to get me to start a TikTok. Maybe if I was a little bit younger, personally have no interest. I'll do what these guys tell me to do, though. I don't know how many Zoomers are going to be hopping onto the mining pool. Maybe they'll mine some Pirate or some some Zcash or something like that. I, I think when I started at Luxor, the, the way that I was viewing content or trying to position Luxor in terms of getting research and stuff out there, I really wanted to put our proprietary data sets at the fore of what we do. So... A lot of the time that I spend in, in the content mines is just looking at like differences in ASIC prices, uh, looking at trends from that, looking at a hash price too, and kind of trying to pair those together to give a picture of exactly what is happening both on the ASIC market front in terms of what machines are being prioritized, why are they being prioritized that way, why have, uh, for instance, one question. It kind of relates to one of the things that Guzman was talking about earlier. ASIC prices have not hit a yearly high again, even though Bitcoin roared to an all-time high in October and November. And I think, you know, usually you expect ASIC prices to perform a little bit better than Bitcoin and, and upswings, but they haven't since the China ban. And why is that? And it's what ASIC, it's what Guzman was talking about earlier. Rack space, infrastructure, all of that is still being built out. There's not enough demand to absorb all of the supply that the China ban left in people's laps. I really just want to bring more transparency on some of these topics, especially rig prices. You know, when I first heard about hash rate index and Luxor a few years ago when I was a journalist, Ethan dropped this data into my lap and I was just like, holy shit, like how do more people not know about this? I can actually quantify how much money a miner can expect to make at a full paper share pool with hash price. Like the, that to me was completely revolutionary. And same with rig prices. I mean, this is something that I feel like the mining industry out of everything in Bitcoin, except for maybe core development, which is that's just a Leviathan that very few people I feel like are really equipped to fully understand. Mining is such an abstruse and esoteric topic that there's a lot more that can be done to shine a light on the kind of darker parts of the side of the industry. And I think that our data sets are great for that. So I really just try to use those as much as possible draw in supplementary research for certain metrics and data when it's needed. I definitely agree with you guys. You guys have one of the best data sets out there. I utilize it for not only research purposes, but also our team utilizes it for internalized internal purposes for models. One of the things that I think would be very helpful in the data set world would be 
um, the compounding percentage decrease or increase of hash rate over time. And if you could set a date and see how far it's dropped or how far it's gone up, that's something that I've noticed when I modeled that data out, I was really shaken back, taken back by like, wow, this, when this drops, hash rate drops low. So let's talk about the bear market of 2023, 2024. How, what can people do today? Because you mentioned $180 a terahash. Like, what do we need to do today, especially for the, the plebs out there, people who are buying one or two or three machines and are running them at other people's facility? That's why I have really stopped doing hosting contracts personally, is because I understand when there's blood on the table and you sign a contract that's six, seven, eight cents a kilowatt hour, the odds of you owning that machine is zero to none, especially if you have more than 10 of them. What advice can we give people today so that they don't set themselves up for failure in 2023 or 2024? Of course, not financial advice, but just advice as market participants and being in the space for as long as we have. Also, kind of the scenario that you describe, it's not as bad as some of the contracts that we are seeing in the market right now. I've been seeing even large miners, not only plebs, but getting to 10 to 12 cents posting contracts. Which is insane. I mean, right now you could potentially be profitable with an S9, of course, an S19, but that's not, not, not going to continue to happen. I mean, hash price will go back to like under 10 cents eventually. I mean, hash rate is only going to go up until it's like uh, marginal cost here. So I think like advice there, it's, there's been like a few golden ages of mining. The China ban was one of them where you could uh, procure uh, ASICs in June. And if you were able to plug them in right away, you have potentially already ROI those miners. If not, you're very close to doing so. But right now, that's not the scenario anymore, right? So kind of like thinking long-term, try to secure hosting rates as low as possible. But most important on the hosting rate is what's the capex that you are deploying. Because if you're buying 150, 180, 200 dollars per hash, that machine essentially takes twice as much to ROI as what like everyone else or all of the other institutional miners are paying for. If I were to invest, I would much rather get into high like OPEX hosting rate, much lower capex. So I ensure that I can like ROI before we go into a better market, which eventually is going to come, right? But yeah, if, if you're a player, try to look for the best deal possible and not get into the first opportunity that arises. Because yeah, that, I mean, we've seen lots of miners going bankrupt. Even the public companies that are right now are trading at like a few billion apiece. If you look at like August uh, 2020, most of them were like really close to going like bankrupt. Uh, like these machines were like, hash rate was like seven cents of their hash. Always keep that in mind when you're like modeling. Kind of what we are going on right now is like a super cycle of hash price where margins are really, really thick. But that's, that's not going to be the case moving forward. So keep that in mind and prepare for it. It's the recipe for success. Yeah, don't drown in the fr- in the froth. I think that like during bull markets, everyone gets so jazzed. There's so much excess. And every cycle, yeah. some Bitcoin or some pleb wants to start mining which is awesome, right? I would never discourage people from trying, but I think people just get in a little too deep. So like people need to manage their expectations instead of trying to find a hosting contract and trying to buy a bunch of S19s and negotiate all that, just like get an S9, run it at home, see what it's like, figure out how difficult it is. Like, why did it just go off? Like you were hashing 10 minutes ago and now you're showing me the red light. There's so many factors to consider. But to me, it's almost like, I know it's easier because you can buy the machine and plug it in, but it's almost like handing someone a shovel and saying like, all right, now let's go find a backhoe and start gold mining. People think that it's so 
simple. You just plug the machine in and it prints money. And that's true. But like Guzman was saying, I was modeling out 2021 ROIs for different setups under different kilowatt hours and different CapEx costs for this report. And when you buy your machine and when you get it plugged in, it changes everything. If you bought a machine at the beginning of this year, like you bought an S19, you were ROIing that S19 in 258 days. An S9, you were ROIing it in 65 days. This is under four cents, so it's not really fair for everyone. But if you look at six cents, it's not much different. But you turn around and you buy that machine in July after the China ban, your ROI actually goes down because mm. you're getting basically the same price, if not lower than at the beginning of the year. And you're turning it on right before this golden window of opportunity for hash price, specifically BTC denominated hash price. So you mentioned BTC denominated hash price. So for the listeners who don't know, that wins when you take a terahash value denominated in Bitcoin. So you, you guys get the question, Bitcoin, buy it or mine it? What do you say? What's the answer in you know, a short two or three minute kind of spiel? Because it's a hard question to answer. And I think there's multiple variables, but I'd love to hear your guys's thought and approach on that question. Yeah, I think it, going back to our previous question, it really just depends on your situation. I'm actually appalled to hear that some people are paying 10 to 12 cents in these hosting contracts, Guzman, because that's what I get in Colorado. I get 12 cents at home. So for me, it's almost like, dude, I mean, not everyone has that, right? Colorado has pretty decent electricity rates. That's well below the national average in the US. I think it really does depend on everyone's personal needs and their setup. I was living in Colorado or my home state of Tennessee. My residential rates are pretty low. Home mining for most of 2021 would have been a very good idea, especially if I started earlier in January. Now, if I was living on the West or East Coast, it's not possible. Unless I was just willing to eat the electricity cost for a newer machine and just basically dollar cost average KYC free Bitcoin. And that's another thing entirely. But if you are someplace with higher electricity, you obviously need to get those hosting rates. And that's a whole new hurdle, right? These hosts are not sharks, but they're, they're economic actors. They want to squeeze the lemon as much as possible. And if you don't know what you're doing at the negotiating table, you're going to get squeezed. So I, I would generally say, I think it's worth it to try. I just wouldn't be betting half of my stack on mining equipment, right? And I personally probably wouldn't have as much equipment as I have today if it weren't for the connections I've made through Luxor in the mining industry, like getting more favorable hosting terms, having the BD team help broker deals for the employee mining program we have. It takes expertise. And if you don't have that expertise, I would generally advise ex against exuberance. But I would always encourage someone to get one S9 if they are more heavily capitalized, maybe an S19 to run it at home if they're really passionate about it. I just think it's about managing expectations, right? Yeah, and I would add to that. It's about managing expectations, but it's also timing. A lot of this comes into when do you get into the market? We've talked about getting in in the frothy time and how that's not good. We've also talked about opportunities like the June China ban and when that was a great time to get in. So, I mean, my advice to people is, is if you're interested in Bitcoin mining, watch, learn, pay attention and wait for the time to really deploy a lot amount of cap a lot of capital. Start off at least getting your foot in so you have reason to stay and pay attention and that would be one or two machines. But if you only have a million dollar net worth, put in 50,000. Don't put in 500,000 or 250,000 because it can provide great returns, but without leveraging debt, without a low a low energy price and without a low cost per terash for acquisition, 
it, it, it doesn't make sense. I want to ask you guys one last question, and that is, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self now that you come into this mining space, into the wild, wild west of an industry? For those people out there that are 18 years old or younger listening to the podcast today, what, do you, what advice do you have for yourself, and where can people connect with you guys on social media and contact you guys for more about Luxor? I would say definitely buy more Bitcoin. When we have a like 2019 crash going Bitcoin back to like four or five K, I definitely got as much as I could, but I, I could probably have gone like even deeper. So continue to stack, do DCA every single day, every single week, and then mining. For me, mining is my like perfect DCA strategy because through Luxor mining pool, I'm getting sats onto my wallet every five minutes at a much favorable like electricity price. I'm not only stacking in Bitcoin every five minutes through my ASEX. I'm also doing it at a discount spot because my machines are profitable, right? So yeah, definitely, I would say get into the industry as early as, as, as possible and then just learn. Go into, like, for example, this podcast, try to listen to all of the people in the industry, go on and read, get into, into a rabbit hole of like research and, and Bitcoin mining research. I think there's amazing and really intelligent people writing about topics related to Bitcoin itself, layer two technologies and mining. So yeah, I would say those would be kind of my two recommendations. Yeah, I would say obligatory, tell my 18-year-old self to buy more Bitcoin, to buy Bitcoin at all. I didn't hold any Bitcoin at that point. And then to just anyone else, they're interested in the in the industry, they're interested in Bitcoin or trying to find maybe a way to make it into a career. I would say is that like we need everyone, we need all stripes. I mean, I studied English in college, right? Like I was reading Faulkner and Shakespeare, and now I use Excel and I never used Excel before. And I model out these charts and do all of this research. But to Guzman's point, like there are a lot of really smart people, learn from them, understand the lingo, figure out what are the talking points and learn how people engage in discourse. Because the Bitcoin community is truly amazing because it is so global and so connected. I've met so many interesting people from all around the world through this thing, all really united under this passion to learn more about and to build this alternative monetary system. And so I would just say, take what talents you do have, figure out what interests you have outside of Bitcoin and try to find a way to make them fit. Because some people might want to try to get into mining as a way to make money and look at it as a career. I remember I was in a spaces with Steve Barber a while back and some guy was asking, how can a guy like me get started? And Steve was just like, honestly, dude, maybe mine as a hobby if you want to, but don't try to make a career out of this right out the gate, find another way in with a way that plays to your strengths and complements your you know, God-given talents. And I think that's really important because back in 2017, 2018, I think there's this conception that this Bitcoin crypto industry, you got to be a finance bro or a coder or something to make it work. And as the industry matures, it's just not true, right? Like we need people from all walks of life to build these companies. So figure out what your talents are, take them, and then try to market yourself to one of these companies. Well, gentlemen, where can people connect with you? That was a great rundown and I really appreciate the time today talking about hash rate. It's hard to get people with your level of expertise to talk about this in an open form. So I appreciate it. Um, so definitely you can find us on hashrateindex.com. Uh, that's like Luxor's uh, data platform, all community driven. Then I'll say a corporate website that mining pools, Luxor Tech, mining that Luxor Tech. And then we are also all over Twitter writing and publishing Really good threats, insights, data points. So you can find us also at, at HashRateIndex and for and also at Luxor Tech Team. Guzman's uh, Twitter handle for anyone wondering is Guz, at Guzman Pintos, and I'm at As I Lay Hodling. 
You can also just look us up by our names. Gozman has S9, S9 fans for his eyes <laughs> on his Twitter profile picture. Well, I like it, gentlemen. Thanks again for the time. Everyone, remember to continue to mine on, and thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Digital Gold. Be sure to subscribe so you're notified when the new episode drops. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review to support our journey to become the number one crypto podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, mine on.